Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Good evening. Thanks for joining us again tonight on Facebook Live. We're so happy for you to join us. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, you're just tuning in for the first time. I'm Pastor Mike Brunzo, and my wife and I pastor Faith Fellowship Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Coming to you from my home tonight in Taylorsville, Kentucky. And I want to speak with you tonight about the subject of righteousness and the importance of righteousness. Uh... If you have your Bibles with you or whatever you use for a Bible, iPhone or iPad or whatever, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verses 26 to 28. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, holy written word. Thank you, Father, that you shared it with us. We thank you, Lord, that it is a word for us tonight. And we thank you, Father, for understanding and the help of the Holy Spirit in discerning your word and we thank you, Father, for revelation knowledge. We ask that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that can believe and receive. And help us to apply this word to our life tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them, his created man, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word image comes from a Hebrew word that means a shade or resemblance. In this passage of scripture, it refers only to the outward appearance of man and not uh, to God's attributes. And the word likeness in the Hebrew means resemblance, model, shape, and again, refers only to the outward appearance. When God gave man dominion and authority, we don't realize the magnitude or the uh, amount of responsibility that went with that dominion. It was over all of God's creation. And the word dominion means sovereignty or control. It's where we get the word domain as in the king's domain. The king has dominion over his domain. Uh, he has sovereignty and rule over everything that's within the boundaries of his domain. And God gave man sovereignty and control over everything that he created. And that includes the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, everything. And that's an awesome domain. In Psalms 8, 6, it clearly tells us, You gave them, mankind, your creation, charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. That's a tremendous authority. That's a tremendous re responsibility that he's put upon his man. And, you know, Adam was a genius. 
He didn't have any problem running God's domain. He didn't have any problem being an under-shepherd to the master shepherd. I mean, he named all the animals. And if you stop and think about it a minute, uh, think about an elephant. Adam named them. And an elephant just looks like an elephant. You know what I mean? A monkey looks like a monkey. A snake looks like a snake. Adam named all those animals. He had to be super intelligent. But we don't have that authority and dominion right now because Adam surrendered it to the devil. But in the final re restoration, man will once again have that type of authority and he will have the rule and dominion of the entire creation of God. Revelation 5.10 tells us that God has made us kings and priests and we will rule and reign with him on the earth. Now, the new heavens and earth is going to be different. People think we're going to go to heaven and spend the rest of eternity floating around on a cloud playing a harp, but that's not it at all. We're going to rule over the entire universe. God has a universe out there. God has a tremendously big domain, and we're going to rule from the earth. This will be our headquarters. We'll be ruling and reigning right here on the earth with Jesus. And the earth is going to be perfect without any flaws. I mean, the earth is beautiful now. If you look at the snow-capped mountains, the beautiful crystal blue uh, oceans and uh, all of the fields and the flowers and the trees and the plants, it's a beautiful place now and it's in a fallen state. You can imagine what it'll be like with the curse lifted. It's going to be a beautiful place. We're going to be able to go fishing and hunting and we're going to have beautiful streams and brooks and lakes and everything. There won't be any oceans because there won't be a need for them. But we're going to have everything that we have here now, except we're going to have it and enjoy it in its original state of perfection. Uh, you know, in the creation, our bodies were formed from the dust of the earth. But our life was created. There's a difference between the two. Genesis 2.7 says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we were formed from the ground, but we had no life until God knelt down in that miry clay and breathed life into our nostrils, and he put his spirit within us, within Adam, and we became a living soul with a mind, a will, and an emo and emotions. We were not created like robots. So man was just a lump of clay until God breathed into him the breath of life. And that's when he was created. It was by divine counsel of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit that decided to create man in their image and in their likeness. That's why it said let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Who is the us? Well, that was the counsel of God in, in the heavens. That was the, the Trinity, the triune Godhead. But let me make something clear about creation. Man was a creation of God. God created man. He didn't crawl out of the sea like some slimy amoeba, and he certainly didn't evolve from a monkey. The Bible says we were made in the image and likeness of God. And if you think we came from a monkey, that's blasphemy. We didn't come from no monkey. We are made, we are created in the image and the likeness of God. Hallelujah. So the word used here for God in the original language is translated from the word Elohim, which is one of God's names. 
and it means God in plurality. Being created in the image and likeness of Elohim involves unity joined with plurality. It's plurality and unity. It's talking about the Trinity. It's talking about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. That was the council in heaven when they decided to create man in their image and their likeness. If you look at the back of one of our coins, I, I looked at a quarter yesterday, as a matter of fact, you'll find on the back of it this phrase, E pluribus unum. It means plurality in unity. For example, there's 50 states, but only one union. E pluribus unum. It's like a baseball team. It's got nine players on the field, but it's one team. It's plurality in unity. And God is a triune being. And at that time, the Trinity consisted of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct and separate beings, yet one God. Jesus was not yet part of that Trinity. He wasn't born yet. So in the beginning, it was the God the Father, God the Word, God the Holy Spirit, but yet one God. So John chapter 1 tells us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. Uh, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, who's he talking about? Who created everything? God the Father, uh, God the Word, or God the Holy Spirit. It was God the Father, God the Word that created everything. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made by the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When he came to earth and left his attributes in heaven, he entered into the body of a little virgin maiden by the name of Mary. And there he entered into the body that was later named Jesus. So Jesus became, or the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we're created in the image and likeness of God, then we must be created as a triune being as well. God created us with a spirit, soul, and body. Three, but one. And, and now watch this. He probably did this to show off a little bit, but our soul is a triune being as well. It consists of the mind, the will, and the emotions. God created us that way. For some reason, God seems to like the number three. In the Bible, when the number three is used, it represents perfection or completeness. And this number is repeated throughout the Bible as a symbol of completeness. Every time you see the number three, it, it represents completeness, perfection and completeness. Uh, God's attributes are three. He's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, ever-present, and omnipotent, all-powerful. And that's why I said earlier, we were created in his image and likeness in outward form only and not in attributes. We're not all-knowing, we're not ever-present, <clears throat> and we're not all-powerful. Although I've been accused of being all-knowing before, my wife always calls me a big know-it-all, so I'm close to omniscient. But I don't have the attributes of God. You don't have the attributes of God. We're created in His image and likeness in outward form only. But anyway, God created us perfect and complete. 
because we were created to live forever. And because we were perfect and complete, we were also able to fellowship with God in the garden during the, during the cool part of the day. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity Adam and Eve had. They could walk with God in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day and fellowship with God and talk with God, and they could do it face to face. And, you know, after sin and everything, Moses wanted to see God's face, and God said, you can't see my face. He said, if you see my face, he says, you'll disintegrate, you'll die. No man has ever seen my face and lived. And so Moses couldn't see God face to face, but Adam could. And in the new covenant, you and I can see him face to face, and we can fellowship with him face to face. So uh, God is so holy that he could have no fellowship with sin, and he couldn't fellowship with somebody that was in sin. So, you know, uh, Adam was able to walk with God, talk with God, fellowship with God face to face. And we didn't know anything about sin or guilt or shame then. But God created us with the ability to choose. He gave us a free will. And even though God knew it was dangerous to do that, he had to give us free will because he didn't want a bunch of little minions or robots running around worshiping him and praising him. He wanted men and women that would love him for who he is and love him and praise him and worship him because they wanted to, not because they didn't have a choice. So God gives us free will. And some people asked uh, me before, why would God put two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, he obviously knew that Adam was going to eat of that tree and mankind would fall and sin would enter into the world. Yes, God did know all of that. And so God had a plan from the very beginning. He says, since before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to restore man even before he fell. So God knew that, but that was the risk God had to take in order to give us a free will. And thank God he did. But, but here's the thing. I thought this myself at one time. You know, well, maybe God messed up by putting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Maybe he should have left that one out. Adam would have never sinned. We'd still be in the garden, praise the Lord, having a good time. And we wouldn't have had to go through all the things that we had to go through. Jesus wouldn't have had to hang on the cross. None of these things would have had to happen if only God didn't put that tree in the garden. But in order for God to give us a free will, he had to give us something to choose between. He had to give us a choice to make. I mean, otherwise he would have just been a hypocrite. I mean, he couldn't say, here, man, I've given you a free will, but you don't have nothing to choose between because everything is perfect in the garden. Everything is wonderful. Uh, you don't have to choose between evil and good. You don't have to choose between sin and not sin, righteousness and, and no righteousness. You don't have any choices to make. Well, why give me a free will? So God put the two trees in the garden so that man would have something to choose between. Our free will had to be tested. So the choices to choose between were the tree of life and live eternally in the presence of God or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and death and live separated from God. Now notice the tree isn't good or evil. It just contains the knowledge of good and evil. 
Adam and Eve had no knowledge of evil. They had no knowledge of sin. They had no knowledge of pain and suffering. They had no knowledge of of, uh, bad things. They had no knowledge of death or sickness or disease or anything because it was nowhere in the earth. And so God didn't want them to gain that knowledge because it would have been a problem for them. So in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So God always makes our choices and the consequences of those choices very clear. It's never a mystery what God means. We never have to scratch our head and say, well, I wonder what God means about this. God is always perfectly clear between the, the difference between good and evil, life and death. And it's quite obvious here, at least to me, the choice that we need to make. You know, he gave uh, Joshua the choice too. He said, choose you this day. Life or death, blessing or cursing. And then he tells them, therefore, choose life. So God not only gives us the choices, but he tells us which one to choose. What a God. But isn't it funny how we always seem to gravitate toward the things that we're not supposed to mess with, the things that we're not supposed to touch. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't smoke. Don't do drugs. Don't look at porn. Well, it's just in man's nature to want to eat of the forbidden fruit. It's just in our nature. But here's the thing. It wasn't in Adam's nature. Adam had no knowledge of it because he was created perfect and complete. He didn't need anything else. There wasn't one thing he needed. He had it all. God said he could have anything else. Every tree that's in the garden, he said, thou mayest freely eat thereof. But don't mess with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, we all know the story. The devil was able to deceive Eve and talk her into eating from the forbidden tree. And she was able to convince her husband, Adam, the Bible says, who was there with her. Adam made the wrong choice and it affected all of mankind. The rest is history. As much as we would like to blame the woman for the fall of man, as men have done down through the centuries, we can't do it. We just can't do it. God gave Adam the commandment before Eve ever came on the scene. He didn't give Eve the commandment. He gave it to Adam. It was Adam's responsibility to teach the commandment to Eve. It was Adam's responsibility to show her that tree and tell her, don't eat from that tree because in the day that you do, will surely die, or at least she'd surely die. But I don't know if he told her or not. He should have. But even if he didn't tell her, or even if he did tell her, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, When she ate of the fruit, A, he should have stopped her before she ate it. He was there with her, the Bible says. Or B, even if she got a bite off of that fruit, he could have stopped her right there, made her repent, and repent before God and get back into right standing with God. God would have forgave her because she didn't. She wasn't under the law. She didn't receive the commandment. That commandment was given to Adam, the head of the house. And as much, you know, uh, whenever we get involved in sin, there's always a consequence. And it doesn't only affect us. It affects our family. 
In this case, it affected the whole family of God. It affected Eve and her children, and it affected you and I and our children, and it affected every human being that was ever born into this world. But here's the thing. God said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And yet Adam lived at least another 900 plus years, uh, bearing many children with his wife Eve. Did God lie? Or did God repent and take that back? Of course not. God is not a man that he should repent. He's not a man that he should lie. God was not speaking of physical death. He was speaking of spiritual death which is separation from God, which is something Adam and Eve knew nothing about at the time. That was part of the knowledge that they gained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are three deaths in the Bible, spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death, or it's also called the second death. And what's interesting about this is that none of them speak of a cessation to exist. In other words, when you die, that's not the end of you. Uh, you ain't just thrown in the ground and then you just disintegrate and that's the end of you. It just means that you will move, the real you, the spirit man on the inside of this body, you'll move from one realm to another realm. Paul said, absent from the body is present with the Lord. When I die, this physical body dies, my spirit man, the real me, will exit this body and be in the presence of the Lord. I won't die uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Just my physical body goes to the grave to await the resurrection. But the real me goes to heaven to be to ever, forever be with the Lord. So it's just moving day. You know, uh, many people believe that death is the end of existence, but it's not. Like I said, it's a transfer from one place to another because we were created eternal beings. We'll live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. There's nothing above, nothing beneath, and nothing in between. It's either heaven or hell. And, and uh, there's the two trees against, life or death. We need to choose between life and heaven or death and hell. We must choose here in this life because once you die, there's no retribution. Uh, it, it's too late to choose then. Uh, you can't choose because it'll be too late. And there's a lot of lost souls out there that don't realize that they even have a choice. And it's our job to get out there and tell them that they do have a choice and tell them what that choice is and tell them who that choice is. But anyway, Adam died spiritually, which separation from God. He lost his right standing with God. He lost his righteousness. And, and that's why when God returned to the, garden, to the garden in the cool of the day to walk with Adam like he did every day, Adam and Eve was hiding. And the Bible says in Genesis 3, 8 through 13, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Isn't that funny? People try to hide from God. We can't hide from God. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere all the time. And, and where you think you're hiding, he's there. You can't hide from God. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou, Adam? And, and it's not that the Lord didn't know where he was. He did. I think he was trying to give Adam a chance to fess up, a chance to confess. And Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Afraid? 
Why? Because I was naked. Naked? How do you know you were naked? And I hid myself. Why would you hide? And he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Has thou eaten of that fruit? Now, God knew he ate from the fruit of the tree. He says, have you eaten from the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And here's where the blame game begins. The man said to the woman in verse 12, uh, or the man said to God in verse 12, the woman whom thou gavest to me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So it wasn't Adam's fault. It was the woman's fault. And if that didn't fly, Adam added this, that you gave me. So if it ain't her fault, it's your fault. Because if you'd have never gave her to me, I would have never ate of the tree. And so then in verse 13, it says, And the Lord God turns to the woman and says, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. It's not my fault either, God. It's the serpent's fault. He beguiled me. He tricked me, and I did eat. Well, then God turned to the serpent. The serpent looked over his shoulder, and there wasn't nobody else to blame. He had to take the brunt of it. And so he was cursed. The earth was cursed, and Adam and Eve was thrust out of the garden. So here we have a, a curse on the serpent. He's got to crawl and eat the dust of the earth for the rest of his life. Eve and, and every woman since then had to have pain and childbearing. And, and Adam had to work the earth and make a living from the earth and from the sweat of his brow. And some people believe that God was pretty hard to cause a curse like that. But God didn't cause the curse. He just announced it. He pronounced it. Adam is the one who caused the curse through his disobedience and his sin, through his bad choice that he made. He allowed sin to come into the world, and the curse was a result of the sin. God just told him what happened as a result of what he did. He just announced the curse. He didn't cause the curse. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, or the cost of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God didn't cause the sin. He didn't cause the death to come into the world. Adam did. Because his gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. So there's the two choices again, the two trees, life or death. And, you know, we, we have to choose almost on a continuous, regular basis those two choices between life and death, blessing and cursing, every day. But you know what? We've got the Word of God that tells us the right choice to make. The day Adam sinned, everything in the garden began to die. Death entered into Adam, Adam and Eve, and they began to die. They didn't die that day. They began to die. And every animal, every tree, every plant in the garden, every blade of, the, uh, of grass in the garden, began to die that day. And like I said, they didn't die right then, but death began to work in them, in all of God's creation, and it has been working till this day. As a matter of fact, death is the last enemy that needs to be conquered. And that's coming up shortly. In Genesis 3.24, it says, After sending them out, Adam and Eve, he thrust them out of the garden. The Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, or angels to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So in other words, the tree of life that Adam and Eve were, uh, were able to eat of freely anytime they wanted, anytime during the day or night or anytime, uh, they were able to eat from the tree of life and live eternally from the fruit that came from that tree. But God had to banish Adam and Eve from the garden that day. And I know it sounds cruel, but it was actually an act of mercy. Because you have to understand now, since sin came into the world, Adam and Eve uh, lost their righteousness. They lost their right standing with God. Death was working in them. Death was all around them. And if they had access to the tree of life, then they would have continued to live for eternity, but in that falling, condi falling condition, separated from God. They tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. But God killed two innocent animals and covered Adam and Eve with the bloody skins. And God instituted animal sacrifice that day, which would give man, mankind access to God, at least on a temporary basis. And since the wages of sin is death, God accepted the death of those two innocent animals. I don't know if they were lambs or goats or sheep or whatever, but two innocent animals had to die for Adam's sin. And the shedding of that animal's blood was a substitute for Adam's blood and Adam's death. So in other words, God allowed a substitute for Adam and Eve's sin so that he didn't have to kill them to pay the wages of sin. Oh, hallelujah. He was setting us up for a savior that was going to come into the world at another time in the fullness of time. When the time was right, he was going to send his only son into the world to die and pay the price of sin once and for all for all mankind. And this here is the precedent setting uh, sacrifice for that ultimate sacrifice that would come someday in the future. But Adam's access to God was very limited. But at least he had access. At least he could still worship God and make offerings to God. And he taught his sons that too. He taught uh, Cain and Abel how to make sacrifices. And uh, Abel made an a acceptable sacrifice. Cain didn't, but he had the opportunity. So Adam taught them. And, and uh, if he didn't teach Eve, at least he learned his lesson now that it was his responsibility to teach his family. And so he taught them to make sacrifice. But he lost his right standing with God. That's why he couldn't fellowship with God anymore. He couldn't talk with God face to face anymore. He couldn't have that time with God in the garden anymore. Uh, and, and his righteousness was God, with God, and, and that meant that he could no longer have anything to do with God on a personal level or a personal basis. See, God is perfect. He's holy and perfect. So he can't fellowship with a man that's in an imperfect condition. He was able to fellowship with Adam because Adam was perfect like him. He was created in his image and in his likeness. So God needed a way to restore that fellowship with mankind. And he needed a perfect sacrifice that could pay the wages of sin once and for all. A sacrifice that would be able to restore man to the original righteousness that he had when he walked with God in the Garden of Eden. And, and righteousness is not a complicated thing. It just means that we're in right standing. We're in right standing with God. God's not mad at us and we have access to him on a daily basis, and we can walk with him, we can talk with him, we can fellowship with him. And you know, the modern day church has been very effective 
in teaching us our need for righteousness. And we've been taught our shortcomings or our sins and our inability to please a righteous and holy God. And the church has been effective in teaching man his need for righteousness and his weakness and inability to please God. I learned early on as a child, you know, I was brought up in the Catholic faith, but I, I figure what's the use? There's no way I can please God. He's up there with a big baseball bat in his hand waiting for me to mess up so he could knock me in the head. And that was my, my view of God. I had no idea I could have fellowship with him. I had no idea I could stand before him righteous. He's up here and he's big and I'm down here and I'm just a worm. I don't have any business having anything to do with God. And, and you know, we've been taught and, and preached too diligently about sin, unbelief, the dangers of conformity to the world and our lack of faith. You know, I was told for years that I needed more faith. And and I was told for years of my sin. And I was told for years of uh, of the dangers of conforming to the world and, and following the way of the world and hanging with the wrong people and all of this. The church did a good job of teaching me that. But unfortunately, we've fallen short of the truth of who we really are in Jesus Christ. Of how righteousness and faith are once again available to every one of us. The devil's kept it a pretty good secret. He's had the blinders over our eyes for years. He didn't want you to know the type of authority and dominion you had over sin. He didn't want you to know the authority that you had over him. And so he kept us in the dark. He kept telling us and beating us down that we don't have enough righteousness to stand before God. We're not good enough to stand before God. God will reject us. He don't want anything to do with us. But it was a lie. It was a lie from the pit of hell. Righteousness and faith are, is available to everyone. The Bible tells us plainly that we are complete in him. Right now, present tense, which is the head of all principality and power. We've been taught that someday we'll be complete in him. When he returns, we'll be complete in him. But the Bible clearly tells us that in Colossians 2.10, that right now, present tense, we are complete in him. In other words, in him means born again, in Christ. Christ is in us. And if we're born again, we're in Christ, he's in us, and we are complete right now, not somewhere off in the future. And then Romans 8.37 tells us we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. When? Right now. Present tense. I won't need a conqueror when he comes back. I won't need to be a conqueror. I won't have nothing to conquer when he returns. I'll be perfect and complete when he returns. I need to conquer the challenges of life right now. And he said we're more than conquerors right now, present tense. And then Philippians 4.13 tells us, I can do all, three, all things through Christ which strengthens me. When will I be able to do all things in Christ? When he comes back? No, right now. I have the strength in Christ to do all things right now. I don't have to wait. Romans 8.1 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. When are we to live without condemnation? When Jesus returns? No, we're to live without condemnation right now. If I'm in Christ, 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in him. I don't have anything to feel condemned about anymore. And it's been the devil's job all these years to condemn us and keep us condemned and keep us under condemnation. Why? So we wouldn't rise up. He, he was always trying to keep us to feeling unrighteous. Why? So we wouldn't feel like we were in right standing with God and we would feel like we couldn't approach him in prayer or any other way in fellowship or even through the word. We're not worthy, but it's been a lie since the beginning of time. Romans 5.1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When will we be justified? When will we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ? Right now, present tense. We can have it right now. And I believe that what scripture says about us is absolutely true. That God himself is our very righteousness right now. And that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, present tense. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm convinced that we're partakers of the divine nature and that there's no condemnation <coughs> to us. John says, walk in light as he is in the light. When? When he returns? No, right now. We can walk in light just like he's in the light right now. I mean, what's the point of us being born again? I mean, the very phrase born again uh, constitutes something that's new, something that's old has passed away and something that's become new. Uh, why? What's the point of being born again if we still carry the nature of fallen man, the sin nature that came into Adam at the fall? Apparently, God can give us new life, eternal life, and forgive us after we sin, but it seems like he can't uh, give us dominion over our old sinful nature. But he has. He's given, he's given us dominion over our old sinful nature. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, it says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, not something that's been rebuilt or refurbished. He says a brand new creation. He says old things are passed away, which is our old nature. And he says, behold, all things are become new. We have a new nature and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. I mean, our old nature, the sin nature that we were born with, that Adam uh, gave us when he sinned in the garden, and, and he was our forefather, and we're his offspring. Well, that same sin that he gave us in the garden and passed it on to us, we've been able to put that off through the new birth. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We put off the nature of sin, the nature of the, the enemy, and we put on the nature of our new father, which is God. Hallelujah. A lot of Christians are living a life of weakness and defeat. And the reason is because we really don't know who we are in Christ. We don't know who Christ is in us. We need to know who and what we are in Christ. And we need to know how God the Father sees us and what he considers us to be. You know, when God looks at us, uh, he sees the blood of his son and he sees the sacrifice of his son when he died for us as our substitute. He don't see our sin. That sin is filtered out through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't realize the power that we have in Christ and the power of Christ that's in us. 
It's like the song Miss Shannon sang for us Sunday so beautifully. I am who he says I am. We're either the righteousness of God in Christ or we're not. We're either who he says we are or we're not. And I say the word is true. We are right now, present tense, the righteousness of God in Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we could earn. It's not a righteousness that we can work for. It is a righteousness that we were given through Christ. Christ is our righteousness. If we're in him and he's in us, we stand before God in his righteousness. And we can not only come before God's throne now, but the Bible says we can come boldly before his throne. And that's a big difference. I remember when my kids were little, they knew when they messed up, you know, they didn't clean their room like they were told or they scratched my car playing with a, a, a truck on top of it or something or they left their eyeglasses on the back of the station wagon and I drove to work with them. They knew that wouldn't be a good time to ask me for ice cream. Why? Because they broke fellowship through what they did and they didn't feel righteous enough or they didn't feel like they were in right standing enough to approach me and ask me for anything. And that's, that's the way that uh, the world wants us to feel unrighteous, not, not be able to approach God for anything. You ain't worthy enough. You ain't righteous enough. But I got news for you. We're righteous in Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. Hallelujah. 1 John 2.28, and I'm getting ready to close. If I don't, I'm afraid I might get excited. Hallelujah. 1 John 2.28 says, and now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. My kids would shrink back from me because they were ashamed of what they did or what they didn't do when they were supposed to do something. But he says if we stay in Christ and we don't break that fellowship and we stay in right standing with God through Christ, then when he does return, we shall not be ashamed. Hallelujah. Adam was ashamed. Adam felt guilt for the first time. Adam hid for those reasons. But we don't have any reason to hide because of Jesus Christ, our righteousness. He made us right, uh, righteous and put us back in right standing with God. We have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide from. Now, I'm not telling, I'm not giving you a license to sin. Uh, you can never sin with any degree of safety. But I'm just telling you, you got a lot more ability and a lot more power to overcome your sins and your shortcomings than you think you do. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. And when you need help, you can come boldly before his throne and receive help and mercy in your time of need. When Adam sinned, he broke fellowship with God. And that's why when God came calling on him in the garden, he shrank back and hid. He recognized that he was naked. And they were always naked. He didn't recognize it yet. And, and, and now he was ashamed, and he felt that for the first time ever. He didn't even know what those things were. And why? It was because he lost his right standing with God. He lost his righteousness, and he couldn't stand before God in an unrighteous state anymore. But I'm telling you, Christ is referred to as the second Adam. The first Adam lost it all for us. The second Adam, Christ, came back and got it back for us. Hallelujah. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. 
And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. We have that fellowship right now. We ain't waiting for it somewhere off in the future. We have fellowship with God right now through Jesus Christ. Jesus restored that fellowship with the Father through the sacrifice of himself in our place as our substitute. And we become the righteousness of God in Christ, and we've been reconciled to him. And we once again stand righteous before the Father, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Hallelujah. And next Wednesday, we'll look at how God made us righteous again, what it involved. It was no easy task. But God performed it through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word tonight. God, I ask you to show each and every one of us exactly who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. And we, we, that we would start, stop selling ourselves short and realize the amount of authority and the power that we have over sin and the enemy. And we thank you, Father, that revelation is going to come to us. We're going to rise up like the men and women of God that we're supposed to be, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing our authority, knowing our dominion, and knowing that we have power over every evil thing in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Now, Lord, I want to say a, pr a special prayer for all the sick out there tonight, especially those that have been affected by this COVID-19 disease. I hate this disease just like I hate all diseases. I hate cancer. I hate heart uh, problems. I hate high blood pressure. I hate all of these things. And God, there's going to come a day when uh, the enemy will no longer have that dominion over our bodies in Jesus' name. And in the meantime, Lord, I lift up everyone that's sick tonight, everyone that's suffering with some kind of an ailment or a disease or some kind of impairment, and I declare them to be free of that thing right now in the name of Jesus. I pray the healing power of God will come upon them, drive out sickness and disease by the power of the Holy Spirit, and replace it with healing and wholeness. I speak to everyone that's suffering from this disease or any effect of this disease, COVID-19, in the name of Jesus. And I command it to leave their bodies and I command them to be healed in Jesus' name and by the authority of that name and by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. We thank you and we praise you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Don't forget, this Sunday we're having live in-person services in our church for the first time in a long while. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That's happening this Sunday at 1030. If you've been watching us online at Facebook Live and uh, you live in the vicinity and you don't have a home church and you're not church, come visit us. We promise we won't bite you. Uh, we, we just want you to enjoy God with us and worship with us. And, and listen and grow through the word of God that's being preached in our church. This Sunday, live in-person services, 1030, 7921 Third Street Road in Louisville, Kentucky. We're the first building uh, north of Outer Loop uh, on the right-hand side of the street. We love you. We appreciate you. We'll see you then. Keep safe and know that Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.
this concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.